These will also be online, by the way, so if anybody is not here tonight, um, or if they would like a copy, um, I know that, for instance, Brother Gabe, all of these, uh, the, the materials that will be here, they will all be on PDF format as well, and we will have them on uh, the Sermon Audio website as well. Um, if for whatever reason you can't access it or you're struggling to, to be able to find it, let me know. I'll email it to you directly. Okay. I'm reminded of the little story of the man who was asked, well, what do you believe? And he said, well, that's an easy answer. I believe what my church believes. Well, what does your church believe? Well, my church believes what my pastor believes. Well, what does your pastor believe? Well, you're not going to believe this, but he believes just like me. <laughs> and this circular logic or illogic, as if you will, is the problem in most churches because we have no clue what we believe. If I were to ask you, for example, how many of you know, and don't be ashamed to raise your hand here, but how many of you know or have heard the term the hypostatic union? Okay? Handful of you. Do you think that the hypostatic union is important or it's just one of those other doctrines that we could take or leave? It's critical. Because the hypostatic union simply means the union between Jesus Christ as God, 100% God, with Jesus being 100% man. So we have the deity, his deity and his humanity in this term, hypostatic union. Now, I was telling Violet on the way up here this more, or this afternoon, I said the problem with most doctrinal classes, I have taken, I've had the privilege of going through systematic theology twice, once at an undergrad level, and then I took a master's level systematic theology. The first time, I will be honest with you, I was dead bored for the first, mm, I don't know, let's say the first semester at least. Because the problem with systematic theology is normally this. The material tends to be very boring. It tends to be very heavy reading. If you don't believe me, pick up that book that's in front of you. That is very, very heavy reading. And when it is not made real or it doesn't come alive to you, you're going to struggle with this class. And so as you go through and you're answering the questions and you're writing questions down maybe, I want you to be able to take time to pray and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you through his word and so that you will have a clear understanding of what theology means. Because when you have a clear understanding, it's also going to change the way you live. Because solid biblical theology dictates who you are as a person, it dictates who we are as a church, it dictates how you respond to one another as a husband and wife, it, re it dictates how your children should respond to you as a parent and the parent to the child. For example, let's take the family unit. Now, it's easy for us, for us men, to say, well, you know what the Bible says, you're supposed to, wives, you're supposed to submit. But before it says anything about submit, for the wife, what does it say for us who are husbands? We are to submit unto God. And then further beyond that, we are to learn to love our wife as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? Unconditionally. Unconditionally. 
So much so that he was willing to lay down his life for the church. So if we have an incorrect theology that says that we are supposed to look after number one, we're supposed to take care of ourselves, you can imagine how that's going to translate between you and your spouse. Uh, What about with the kids? Now it's easy for us, just about everybody here is a parent or has been a parent, it's easy to rah, 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 be judge, jury, and executioner, especially for us dads. But what does Ephesians 6, 4 say? Dads, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so if our theology is wrong, what we'll end up doing is we'll end up teaching our children, do as I say, not as I do. So can you think of anything in your life or anything that you might be involved with or maybe somebody else that doesn't have an application to be found in the scripture? What about finances? Are finances covered in the scripture? Sure. What's 1 Corinthians 4.2? Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So it, we heard a message this morning, and the gentleman that was speaking is from Heart Cry Missionary Society. And as he was speaking, he was saying, is there anything wrong with having a nicer car? No, there's nothing wrong with having a nicer car, as long as you can afford it. Now, if you're struggling to meet all your other bills, God's not going to impress upon your heart for you to go out and get a five or $600 a month car payment, because that's not being a good steward. But if you have the resources and you have a good job and you're being a good steward with the rest of your finances, then there isn't necessarily anything wrong with making a new purchase or a new car purchase or to purchase a home versus renting a home or living in an RV full time or whatever it is that you want to do with your life. But the principles that are found in God's word are going to be dictated by the doctrine and how you believe or why you believe what you believe. So I want us to consider these five points this evening. The first one, quickly with me, is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And the first value that I want you to know this evening is that doctrine is commanded to be taught by Christ. If there was no other reason why we should have a doctrinal class, it would be because Jesus Christ commanded us to teach doctrine. Somebody read for us Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, please. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Okay. English does not read the same way as it does in Greek. Verse 19, actually, the the phrasing here in the Greek actually says, As you are going, therefore, what is the therefore? And we're going to go through this a lot in doctrinal class. Anytime you see the word therefore or wherefore, you should see what it is therefore 
So it's always going to refer to whatever came just prior to that. So Matthew chapter 18 or 20 verse 18, Jesus uh, speaks to them and he says, how much authority? All authority. So this means that you don't have to earn the right to be able to share the gospel with somebody. Christ already commanded us to share the gospel. Now, if all authority has been given unto him, and we believe that Jesus Christ died for his elect, he died for his church, and that all that the Father gave to him in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 was going to be given to Jesus Christ, that all authority applies not just to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to the command that he gives to his disciples. And yet today, there are still 3.2 billion people in the world who have never heard of Jesus Christ even once. 3.2 billion people. That's 40% of the world's population. There are still some 3,700 uh, 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 translations or languages and dialects that still don't even have even John 3.16 in their language. And yet we've got Bibles laying all over the house, most of which gather dust on a normal basis. So he says, all authority. So therefore, as we get to verse 19, as you are going, as you are going how? By the authority that has been granted in heaven and in earth. What's the next words? Make disciples. Make disciples. Now go down to verse 20. What does he say? Teaching them. Didasco in the Greek. Teaching them to observe how many things? All things. Now, it's true that there's only a small, very small amount. You could actually take all the words that are found in red in your Bible and you could read them probably in about an hour and a half to two hours. Every red word. That's all the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. But obviously he said a lot more than that. I mean, the disciples were with him for three and a half years, right? So he taught them a lot of things. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul goes out into the wilderness or out into the desert after he comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We find this in Galatians. And he says that he went out into the wilderness or into the desert, and there he was taught. So the disciples, by the time we get to the writing of 1 Peter, Peter himself says that everything that Paul wrote was actually considered scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that. So by the, by the time we get to A.D. 60, which is approximately 30 years after the Lord Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again, and then went back to heaven in those 30 years, the Apostle Peter has already recognized, and the early New Testament church has recognized, that all of the writings of Paul, which had been completed at that time, were all part of the canon of Scripture. So there's a lot in Paul's writings. There's a lot of things that he talks about. I mean, he covers everything from, from sexual immoralities in 1 Corinthians. He talks about uh, taking another brother to court in 1 Corinthians. He talks about legalism in the book of Galatians. He deals with love and drunkenness and, and, and uh, 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 the spiritual blessings that we have in the book of Ephesians. He tells us how to have joy in every aspect of our life in the book of Philippians. You go back to Galatians and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. It's not fruits of the Spirit, by the way. It's fruit, singular. 
You can't say, well, I've been blessed with a lot of perseverance, but I ain't got no love for anybody. I wasn't blessed with that gift or that fruit. No, that's not the way the Scripture reads. The Scripture reads that this is one aspect. You could say it's like taking an apple and cutting it into nine pieces. All nine of those pieces fit together to make up that one apple. All nine parts of the fruit of the Spirit are to be found in every true believer. The problem is that some of us probably need a little bit of work in one or two or maybe three or four or eight or nine of those areas. But yet every one of us are also going to learn through progressive sanctification, we are going to learn what it means to be able to grow to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is the encouraging aspect of Christianity because Christianity doesn't ever say, well, I've reached the pinnacle, so therefore I'm golden. Christianity will never tell you to be able to look down on somebody else who isn't at the same level spiritually as what you are. I mean, let, let's say, for example, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to use your boys there as an example. Uh, nobody's going to be able to look at these two young men right here and then look up at my two sons and say, well, you know, they're just not as big as Trenton and Sterling. I mean, there just must be something wrong with them. What's the difference between Trenton and Sterling and these two young men? Older. That's a sister talking for you. She's not talking about Trenton and Sterling or Cuter. Now, in every aspect of our life, you have to remember that the only one that is keeping score is not you. It's God. Spouses, you're not keeping score for your spouse. You're not keeping score for your kids. Kids, you're not keeping score for mom and dad. Because we're all going to fail. We're all going to sometimes fail miserably. But Philippians reminds us, faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That means that if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he is the one that is keeping us. He is the one that saved us. He is the one that keeps us. He's the one that sanctifies us. He's the one that justified us. He is the one that one day will come back and glorify us as well. Now, does that mean that we don't have a responsibility to teach biblical doctrine so that we actually can be involved in the growth and the maturity of one another? Sure. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, I think to, to, to help understand this, you're going to need to understand what happened in the early New Testament period during Roman times. You could go to a marketplace, and of course there was a lot of pottery that was there. Anybody know the story of Vesuvius, Pompeii? Exploded in AD 79. They are still finding pieces of pottery that were made and it was actually covered over until the early or until the late 1800s. But on that pottery, if you went to a marketplace and if a, if a, if a potter was making a vessel to be able to cook in and he actually had a crack in it, he would hold it up as he was firing it or glazing it, if any of you have ever done pottery, and there was any kind of defect in it, 
then he would have to cover that defect with wax. That wax would then be sealed into it and then he would fire it again. Now, a vessel that was made that had no wax in it so it could hold some kind of liquid or it could be used for cooking would be able to have the stamp on it in Roman or in Latin would be sin ser, which meant without wax. This is what he's talking about here. So he says, as newborn babes desire the sincere or the without wax word that you may grow thereby. In other words, no fillers. Anybody here ever been to Europe? Okay. You will know if you ever get a chance to go to Europe, you will know that the food is vastly different than it is here in America. What is the difference between food here and food from the European Union? We've got fillers in our food. You can actually go over there and you can pick up a box of cereal and there's actually three or four ingredients in it. Here, if you buy a box of Cheerios, you've got 1,739 different fillers before you even get to any kind of actual food. Milk's the same way. It doesn't matter what it is. There's all kinds of stuff and junk that is in there. And is that stuff actually bad for the body? Yeah, sure is. And yet we keep eating it. The scriptures are no different. This is the best commentary that you will ever find on the scripture itself is the scripture. And as we study doctrine, my, de my desire and my goal is that you will learn to not just rejoice in doctrine, but to be able to enjoy the doctrinal class. There are going to be times it's going to step on our toes. But the more we understand the scripture, the more we're going to be able to realize, hey, this is actually making me more like Jesus Christ. That's the goal of biblical doctrine. And so in Matthew chapter 28, and he says here, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, he is simply referring to the doctrine, the things that he taught. This means when we get to, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. All of those things that are found there in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 to 25. When he speaks and gives his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and he says, Father, I pray for them who will one day believe. What a precious truth that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is getting ready to go to the cross, actually remembers me. He remembers you. Fill in your name in the blank. So this is the first thing, the value of doctrine. It is commanded to be taught by Christ. Number two, it is necessary for the growth of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. <clears throat> and they devoted themselves to the apostles' <clears throat> teaching. It's the same word. It's biblical doctrine. Why was this so important? Well, we find out the reason for this in verse 41. So those who received his word, his teaching, his doctrine, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That is incredible. 
So you've got at least 3,000. You start off with 120 of them in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down. By the way, is it the same Holy Spirit that came down in power on the day of Pentecost that indwells you and I? So why do we live defeated? Why do we live dis- why do we live in a way that is discouraged or despondent or despair? If it's the same Holy Spirit that added 3,000 and then 5,000 and and multitudes came and as the word of God spread, by the time we get 30 years down the road, you have churches that are in just about every town. In fact, in the island of Crete itself, tradition tells us that there were 100 different churches in 100 different towns. Just inside of 30 years. Do you think they did that on their own strength? Absolutely not. They did it under the power of the Holy Spirit. And why? Again, verse 42, they, who is it that they're speaking about? Who's the they here? Who do you think is the they? I'm sorry? The people who are added to the church. Those who are part of this assembly. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because the apostles were teaching them how important it was going back to Matthew 28. The Lord Jesus Christ said to teach and make disciples. So these new disciples are being taught what Jesus wanted them to know. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And what happened to those who were being saved by day by day? They were being devoted to the apostles' doctrine. And you see, there's a big difference between first century Christianity and American Christianity. In first century Christianity, you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you were baptized as a sign or as a profession of that faith. You knew full well that tomorrow you might be lion food in the Colosseum. For us here in America, unfortunately, baptism is almost like a, oh, if we get baptized, we will. If we don't, we don't. It's not a big deal. Living a life of discipleship says that we understand that Jesus Christ is the one who calls us. He is the master. We are the slave. And to know that, we have to understand doctrine. Does the Lord Jesus Christ call us to live a life of a bed of roses? No. Isaac Watts wrote the the hymn, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Should I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? No. It is from the cross that Jesus Christ calls us and he says, Take up your cross and what? Follow me. That's the command for every Christian, not just a pastor, not just missionaries. Not just those who are in some position of leadership, but for everybody who claims the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are called to be a disciple. You and I are called to take up our cross. You and I are called to walk with Jesus, whether it's a good day or a bad day. I heard something very important this morning. And he was talking about discontentment from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And he said this, If we are discontent with the things and where God has us in our life, 
what we are actually saying is that we are discontent with Jesus. Think about that for a minute. If we are discontent with what God Himself has placed in our path, sovereignly placed in our path, and we are complaining about whatever it is that we've got going on, what we are actually saying is, God, we are dissatisfied, we are discontent with You. Some great thoughts for us to consider because... Nobody has a perfect life. Nobody has... Again, we don't live in a bed of roses. It's difficult every single day. Sometimes it's a slog maybe even just to get out of bed. Sometimes maybe you don't want to go to work. Sometimes you don't want to love your spouse. Sometimes you don't want to love your kids. Sometimes you don't want to love whatever it may be. I don't think anybody here loves paying bills, but we have to do it. Thirdly, look at Romans chapter 16. The third value of doctrine is that it is essential for the purity of the church. Essential for the purity of the church. Listen to Romans 16 verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine or teaching. It's that same word. It's the same same responsibility here that Jesus gave to his disciples. And he is saying that if the church is going to remain pure, look at 1 Corinthians, for example. What had happened there? I mean, there were things that were going on that were not even being named amongst the Romans. It was that bad. One brother was taking one to court. Another woman, or another man was actually living and sleeping and, and, and having intimacy with his stepmom. And so all of these things are taking place within the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul writes and he says, listen, he says, you've got it so wrong. One of you are saying, well, I am of Apollos. One says, I am of Cephas. Another one says, I am of Paul. And he says, wait a minute, don't you realize that you're all of Jesus Christ? And if you're all of Jesus Christ, that means that you and I are called to follow His commands. That means to love one another. We talk about this in the Lord's table. When we take the Lord's table in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find those, and this side, they were sitting over here because they were all the halves, and they were coming and eating filet mignon and and throwing the Lord's table on at the end of it to remember Jesus. The ones on this side, they were doing good to have brown bag lunches. They may not even have peanut butter and jelly because they couldn't afford it. And this group was saying, we have more. We're being blessed by God because we have this. And this group is looking over at this group and they're saying, well, I wish I was that spiritual. I wish I could be blessed like that. And you know, there are a lot of times we've seen this. If you've ever been to a third world country, uh, there are a lot of those people over there. We saw this in Liberia. Those dear brothers and sisters over there had two sets of clothes to their name. The ones that they wore and the ones that they wore on Sunday. That was it. And one of the first things that they asked us when we got there was, well, what did you bring us? What are you going to give us? I said, I'm going to give you the Word of God. Oh no, Pasumai. Well, no, we, want to know, we know that. We want to know if you're going to build a school building for our children. 
We want to know if you're going to provide clothes for us, if you're going to dig a well in our villages. I said, nope, not going to do any of that. Well, why not? Well, number one, I don't have the building, building skills or carpentry. I can't dig a well. I can't do any of those things. I'm not a tailor. I can't make clothes for you. I said, here's the problem with all of the NGOs, the non-government organizations that are out there in Liberia. I said, they're giving you everything but Jesus Christ. And when your children are dying, when grandma and grandpa, when the ma's and the pa's of the villages, that's what they called their grandparents, the great-grandparents, when they're dying, I said, they're dying with nice buildings and wells, nice clothing, food in their bellies, and they're going straight to hell. So what good is that doing them? I said, but if I'm coming here and I'm coming to tell you what the Word of God has to say, I said, you can die and not have one bit of education. You don't have to know how to read. You don't have to have nice clothes. You don't ever have to have ridden in a car. You don't ever have to have drunk a bottle of Coke. You don't have to do any of those things. But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, one day you will have riches beyond compare. That's what true missionaries do. That's what you and I are called to do when we go to make disciples. The goal is not to make somebody a Baptist when we go out and talk to them about the truth of Scripture. The goal is to make somebody, and you'll see this in your lesson. What is that question number four down the bottom? What is a Biblicist? The answer is on page 26, by the way. Number four. Second John. The book of Second John. And verse 9. There's been much debate over who exactly John was writing to here in this epistle. Obviously it is a particular lady who is of the elect and her children, it was maybe written as a personal or as a personal letter, or it could be a reference to a particular group of churches that he was writing to. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching doctrine, it's the same word here, of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now he's not talking about having a colleague or, or having a friend or having somebody come over to your house for a cup of coffee. That is not what he is talking about here. He is talking about those who wish to come to your house to be involved in some kind of quote Bible study or some kind of little group and to be able to teach you something contrary to the word of God. John is saying here, avoid them. He is saying here, if they don't have the teaching of Christ, and what is Christ teaching? He says, go and make disciples. Christ died for his bride. He died for his church. If the church was important enough for Jesus Christ to die for, how much more or how much of importance should it be for you and I? 
It should be vital to us. One more. Second Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to young Timothy here, who he has taught in the faith. And he tells them, he says in the first part of chapter 3, he says there will be perilous times that are coming. There's going to be some really difficult times. And he says this isn't, this isn't anything new because we know that this is what Scripture tells us. The world is not getting any better. It will not get any better until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But he says, In the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be, and this reads like right out of a newspaper. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. So this fifth one, by the way, the, the fourth one, I gave you essential for the purity of the church. Number four is that it provides assurance of salvation. If you have a desire to know God, to learn God's word, it is a mark of assurance in the life of a believer that you actually are a true believer. It, it, there's actually nine tests. We'll have to go through them at some point. There's nine tests that are given in the book of 1 John alone. And you want to know whether you are a true believer, if you have any doubts or any questions about whether you know the Lord Jesus Christ, read the book of 1 John. Do you love God? Do you love God more than you love your sin? Do you love God's people? Do you love God's word? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a desire to put those things away? Do you say that you live in the light, but you actually live in the darkness? you will know that you are a believer or not a believer. So he continues here, and he says in verse 10, you, however, he is speaking to Timothy here, you, have, however, have followed my teaching. And we find, number five, that the value of doctrine is that it is profitable for the maturity of believers. Now again, the gentleman this morning that was sharing and he gave an illustration. He said, you know, if you have a little one and they come to church and they're brand new and they've only just been born and, and this little one comes to church and they're sucking on a bottle, we don't think anything of that. What if they come to church and they're a year old and they're still sucking on a bottle? Most of us probably wouldn't think anything about that, right? What about if they were seven or eight and they walked into church and they had a bottle? Or, or what if they were 12 or 13 or 16 or 17 and they walked in and they came in with a bottle? I think we would have some concerns, number one, about their health, about their well-being, because by then they should be eating meat. Long ago they should have been meat, eating meat. And here's the point. And if you're in this particular place in your life, I want to encourage you with these next few statements. You and I 
are all going to grow at a different level. There are areas my dad has been saved for how long now, Dad? 51 years. I've been saved for 30, 35 years. There are going to be areas of my life that I am growing and that I am changing and maybe the Lord has had to do some work in my heart and some changes that my dad may never ever ever have to go through in his life. Because there are different areas in his life that he has already surrendered to the Lord and he has recognized what God expects for him and yet I've had to learn the hard way. There may be things that he still has yet to go through in his life. Just like there is with you. And again, I started out the class this evening by telling you that you can't compare yourself to anybody else. You can't compare yourself to your husband, to your wife, to your kids. You can't compare yourself to Pastor Mark. You can't compare yourself to my dad. You can't compare yourself to John MacArthur. Every one of us walk a different path. And there are going to be things that you're going to go through that I'll never go through and vice versa. The question is, how do we respond to that in the maturity that we have? If we're still acting after we have been saved for two or three weeks or months or years or 25, 30, 40 years, if we're still acting the same way and we're still on the milk of the word, then where is the problem? The problem is how we are looking at God's word. Is God's word even important to us Enough to be able to dig into it so that we can change. I, I mean, I, I was making a joke earlier about these little fellows here as compared to, to my guys. You know, one day they may be a lot bigger than my boys. But they're not going to do it by not, I'll put in a plug here for you, Mom, by not eating vegetables. <laughs> You know, they have to eat healthy food as well. And as they grow, their diet is going to change. And, and hopefully they're going to eat good food. And one day they're going to be big and strong. They're going to be able to do the things like a big kid. But I think that Ryan and Katie would be very concerned if they stayed this size for the next 10 years. Because that's not the way we are as humans. And God uses that illustration and there are metaphors that are found throughout the scriptures over and over and over. And we are likened to a babe who grows. First John talks about little children. And then he talks about young men. And then he talks about fathers. There's a progression that is there. You should be more like the Lord. This should be your desire. And if you want to write this down, my goal should be to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ today than I was yesterday and to be more like Him tomorrow than I am today. My goal as a believer should be to be more like Jesus Christ today than I was yesterday and more like Him tomorrow than I am today. Here's, here's the question. For those of you who have been saved for any length of time, when trials and difficulties and troubles come into your life, do you handle them the same way today as you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago as a believer? You see, if, if, if I'm out there and I'm working in the yard and 
I get some nails and hammer and piece of wood and I'm putting stuff together and I hit the wrong nail, I shouldn't be responding the same way as a new believer as what I am the older I get in Christ. I should be learning to respond differently. If my wife and I have a disagreement or the kids have a disagreement, I should be learning to respond in such a way that I'm recognizing more and more easily, as it were, that, hey, I have caused an offense to my children. I have caused an offense to my wife. I need to make that right. There's a reason why we get to Ephesians chapter 4 or chapter 5 and, and Paul is given the relationship between the husband and the wife and he says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Well, in England, it'd be your wrath. But whatever it is, don't let the sun go down in that way. In other words, keep short accounts. The only way that you can know that would be by reading the book of Ephesians. By listening to the messages when God uses somebody to teach you from the book of Ephesians. We've gone through uh, half of Revelation and now we're going through the book of Philemon. The things that you are learning from Philemon on a Sunday morning, my prayer is that that somewhere, because every one of us have been down this road, every one of us have been on this path, every one of us probably struggle with people (coughs) in our life that have done us wrong that we don't want to forgive. This series on Philemon, every series, every message that I preach is preached to me first as I'm preparing that message. And there are things that I've had to consider in my own heart and in my own life. And and Lord, am I truly forgiving so-and-so for this offense or for that offense? Am I truly learning how to correctly, biblically forgive my wife, to biblically uh, uh, forgive my children or my parents or asking from my part to be able to ask their forgiveness for an offense that has been caused? You see, if I'm not willing to do that, I'm not really growing. I've become stagnant. Because those are the things that God commands from us, from His Word, that says if we are becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ, we will learn to do those things. Everybody here probably went through some kind of catechism or or Sunday school maybe as you were growing up. And what's one of the things that you're taught? The Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. And yet, so many people are unwilling to ask forgiveness. So many people are unwilling to grant forgiveness. Continue with me. Look what he says it does. He says, you have followed my teaching. This is my doctrine. And the first word there in your Bible, you may have my conversation. The word is actually conduct. It's my lifestyle. My aim in life, my, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, but he doesn't stop there. My persecutions, my sufferings that happen unto me, this is what sound biblical doctrine does for you and me. It changes every aspect. I'm sure my dad would agree with me in, in, in all the years of ministry that he's been in ministry and all the years of ministry that I have been in, I guarantee that we could probably knock out 95% of the counseling that we have ever done in all the 75 years total of ministry between the two of us that we have done. 
if people simply had right doctrine. I, I would say 95% might even be a low number. You see, because if we have right doctrine, we're not going to find ourselves sitting in front of a couple that one wants this thing, one wants the other, and well, we're just incompatible, so we're going to go get a divorce. But we're not going to have struggles with rebellious children or teenagers. We're not going to struggle with, have people that are struggling with work relationships or family relationships if we have correct doctrine because our correct doctrine is going to change how we see things because biblical doctrine is going to have our focus on Jesus Christ. You know the new banner? I don't know if any, any of you actually noticed the new banner we got upstairs, okay? We've had it up there for two weeks now. Solus Christus. It's the one right behind the pulpit now. Yeah, we've got one that is Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And then we've got one right behind the pulpit, Solus Christus, in Christ alone. If He is our focus, if the cross of Christ is what drives us every single day, whether it's getting up to work or if you're retired, it doesn't matter what you are or what you are doing at this stage of life. If you're going to school, you're going to college, you're working, whatever it may be. Jesus Christ changes lives. Look what he says, continuing, last two verses. And we mentioned these right at the very beginning, verse 16 and 17 of the same chapter. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? Teaching. Doctrine. Changes of lifestyle. For reproof, for correction. Oh, we don't like that part, do we? That, that's the part when, you know, we don't do what mom and dad have to say and they have to get out the pow-pow. Or we get stood in a corner. Or whatever the punishment is. For reproof, for correction. Because when you stack yourself up against the holiness of God and you stop stacking yourself up against me or your husband or your wife or the other person who's sitting at a table next to you, if our focus is on the holiness of God, that means that we've got a lot of changes yet to go. Yeah? Because if my focus is me and Brother Gabe or me and my dad or me and Brother Scott, you know, we're going to have some big problems. I can't grow hair like he does. You know, there are things Brother Gabe likes that I don't. And vice versa. So that can't, he can't be my focus. He can't be my standard. And if Jesus Christ and His perfection is my standard, now I realize, oh, yeah, I haven't been the kind of husband I need to be today. I realize, oh, I, yeah, I probably said some things to my kids I should have handled a lot differently. Or maybe I should have handled things differently in the church. Or with another brother or sister in Christ. But if it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, we were in a church, I can't remember which one it was, it may have been in England. And, and I remember mentioning that we were going to go through a discipleship class. And these couple of individuals came up to me and they said, we've been saved a long time, 
we're not supposed to be disciples anymore. Uh, yes, actually you are. Because you're ever learning. I'm ever learning. I, I continue. I, I've shared this with Brother Gabe. If I've shared it once, I've probably shared it in every single class that he's been going through in Hebrews. I have learned something new that I did not know about Hebrews every single week. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've read Hebrews and I've just never seen some of those things. But why all of these things? And we're going to look at this, Lord willing, and it's going to be in part of your lesson here, that the man of God, the person of God, the woman of God, the child of God, may be complete equipped for every good work. This, my friends, is what you and I are called to. We are called to be disciples. We are called to learn doctrine. We are called to value doctrine. Because value in doctrine is going to change your life and mine. Yeah, there's a lot of material and you probably will never learn all of that. This material is, is, is stuff that you would normally do and learn going through Bible college. But you know what I had to learn the hard way? You can learn all of that material right there and you can pass all of the exams just like I did and yet still not know Jesus Christ. You can learn all of the stuff in that book. You can be an encyclopedia and you can have it all memorized from the front to the back. And if your life is not becoming more like Jesus Christ, you are nothing but empty words. You see, this is why James is so important. Because James chapter 1, as Dad went through in the series, we have to not just be a hearer of the word, we have to be a doer. And my purpose in teaching you this, these classes on doctrine now, I don't want you just to be a hearer. I just don't want, I don't want you to be able to come here and just start spouting wonderful truths that you're going to learn and doctrine and, 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 and history and the early Christian church and, and all those things. That's wonderful. But if it's not making you more like the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be better for you to talk about how bad the Broncos are. Because it's going to be about as profitable. Seriously. Our lives have to change. And our lives will change if we're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the glorious truth of doctrine. Yes, doctrine can be boring. But it's only going to be boring if your eyes are in the wrong place. If you're looking at this book and you're thinking, man, we're never going to get through this thing. That's the way I was when I went through my first class. By the way, that book right there, that's about actually nine credit hours in college, in Bible college. Three, doct or three of the major doctrines, the next three, and then the last four. Same thing at a master's level. But all of those things don't mean anything if I don't learn how to be a more loving father, husband, brother in Christ, church member, and more importantly, a believer that is becoming more like Jesus Christ. So I hope that this will change your life. And I hope you'll be encouraged. The way you'll be able to do that, fill out the material. Answer the questions. Take the time. This is one of the reasons why we're giving you actually extra time this first class will not be 
the extra time because it'll be on the 15th. Um, but the next one will then be two weeks later. There are going to be other things we're going to be doing in the interim. But the goal is uh, to be able to have one class every two weeks or at least two a month and uh, give you plenty of time to be able to answer the questions. Does anybody have any questions for me? Does everybody like meeting down here rather than upstairs? Yeah, okay. Yes, Sam. Yes, yeah, bring a pillow, spray foam, whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, and there, there are some that have brought pillows, so yeah, you're welcome to do so. Yeah. Anybody? Uh, Sterling. You mentioned no filler earlier. Does that just mean that we should be only using the Bible for our learning rather than using other books and stuff as well? Or can we use other books too? That's, that's a great... Yeah, so, so the, the question is, does that mean that we only use the Bible? God has gifted men down through the ages. Many gifted men have had the ability to be able to write. And they have spent time studying and writing commentaries. I think the important thing is that we know who we're following or who we're listening to when we're reading or studying. Because there are a lot of people who are out there. You can go to the Christian bookstore and probably 95% of it is nothing but mush. It'll turn your brain into dribble. Um, and that's not that's not a slight against the bookstore owner. It's a slight against American Christianity that it has come to such a point that nobody knows the difference between solid biblical doctrine and mush anymore. And so I think that we need to... We can learn from books like this, from men like MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Steve Lawson. There are a number of men who are out there. Um, there there's nothing new under the sun. And, and everyone who has ever served as a minister or as a pastor, striving to be a biblical pastor, a biblical teacher of the word, has learned off the backs of others who have come before. I mean, after all, the disciples had to teach what Jesus taught them. He walked with them for three and a half years. And even at the foot of the cross, they all fled. But it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost that they went out and changed the world. And so I think that there are things that as we study the Old Testament, we're going to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with reading other materials. Um, just being careful what we put in our bodies. Uh, it's like the difference between a, a child going and going into the grocery aisle. We know that if we were to walk into the cereal aisle and we wanted to have something healthy, we're probably not going to start in the cereal aisle. But a child sees Lucky Charms, Fruit Loops, Apple Jacks, and they see all of these wonderful things that the number one ingredient is sugar and the next ten ingredients are some kind of sugar. Those are fillers. For us to be healthy, we have to read healthy authors. And I think that if we are starting with, we need to start with the scriptures so that we can understand. And the more we see and the more we understand of doctrine, the easier it's going to be to find and select good, solid books. And I've, I've made a list. I, maybe I should print it out again for this coming Sunday. 
but I've written a list of 25 books that I think that should be in every Christian home and read in every Christian home. One of them is Pilgrim's Progress. To, to be able to have that that book, um, it's it's I've probably read Pilgrim's Progress maybe 20, 30 times in my lifetime. Because next to the Bible, I think it's one of the best books that a Christian can read. Anybody else? Well, we did start off with some extra material and going over the book a little, or the the, the material here. Um, again, we've got two extra books here. So if if you'll do this, if you have bought or if you haven't already bought your book. Um, there are some gifts that have been made. If you can't afford a book, we want you to make sure you have a book anyway. Okay, but if you can, um, just make you can put a, a, a cash. You don't have to do it tonight, um, but put a, a cash or a check. You can put it in an envelope. Put books on it and just drop it in one of the boxes upstairs. All right. <clears throat>